Well, if you've been with us uh, lately, you know that we've been making our way through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And just recently, uh, the past couple of weeks, we saw that Ezra, the man whom the book is named for, the man who authored the book, has arrived in Jerusalem. We saw that Ezra was a man who was highly educated. He was a leader. He was a a priest, actually could trace his lineage all the way back to the first high priest, Aaron. And he, uh, he was a man who we believe even could have served in the royal court of Artaxerxes, the Persian ruler who ruled essentially the world at that time, including Israel. Artaxerxes had allowed uh, uh, Ezra to go back to his homeland, and we saw last week that Ezra, uh, in an effort to help reform uh, that nation and, and teach the Word of God there and instruct it there and, and help reform their worship and, and everything else, had uh, given up essentially uh, what was relatively speaking, I think, a pretty cushy life in Persia and asked King Artaxerxes if he could lead a group back. And Artaxerxes gave permission to any Israelite that was still living in in Babylon or Persia, however you want to name it, in exile, essentially, to go back to Israel and and to help rebuild that kind of new fledgling nation that had just finished building the temple 60 years earlier. And so Ezra gathered uh, leading men of Israel. He, it ended up being, you know, with women, children, and, and, the, and the aged, it, it probably ended up being five to, to 8,000 people, and he led them on a 1,000-mile journey uh, by foot, uh, about a four-month trip uh, across uh, various terrain, carrying tons, literally, of silver and gold, uh, and risking, without a military escort, uh, attacks by bandits and robbers, and, but they had gathered before the trip, to pray, to fast and pray. And Ezra says, the hand of our God was on us. He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way, and we came to Jerusalem. God had protected them by his hand the entire way, and he brought them home. And and we saw at the end of of chapter 8 that there was a a great celebration and time of worship and, and sacrifices made at the temple. Ezra's mission was to teach the people God's Word, to study the Word of God himself, to live by the Word of God himself, and to instruct the people of Israel in the Word of God. And what we see is that Ezra, essentially, when he arrived, spent four months doing that. If you look at Ezra chapter 7, verse 9, which is kind of a summary of of his arrival, you see in verse 9 of chapter 7 that he arrived on the uh, first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem. And then if you fast forward to chapter 10, which we'll be looking at next week, you'll see that the events that take place here in chapter 9 and then in chapter 10 occur in the ninth month. And so we know that Ezra arrived in the fifth month, and then in the ninth month, these things that we're going to talk about today happen. So that means that for a little over four months, Ezra dove headfirst into his mission. He 
went around instructing and, and teaching and, instru- and uh, helping people uh, understand God's Word. So Ezra has been teaching the Word of God for four months. And what happens? Well, you would think that after a man who's that dedicated arrives and instructs people for four months in the Word of God, that things would have gotten much better. That, uh, that Ezra would have been flooded with people who came up to him and said, you know what, I'm so glad that you have been instructing us in God's Word because my family worship time has just gotten so much better. Or my quiet times in the morning have just exploded, Ezra, because of your faithfulness to teach the Word of God. I've so grown in prayer, Ezra, because of your teaching. Well, is that what Ezra heard? Is that the report that Ezra was given after four months of teaching God's Word? Well, not quite. If you turn to Ezra chapter 9, that's our text for today, we will see what, in fact, uh, Ezra is told. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up and follow along, and and even as I preach, uh, keep them open. It'll help you. Ezra chapter 9, here's the word of God. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and in Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. 
Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all this had come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again? and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped, as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our great, in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Well, it appears as though Ezra, although he's been traveling around or instructing the nation of Israel in the Word of God, has, up till this point, not known what was going on. I can't imagine that he did, given his reaction to the news. Ezra's reaction is huge because the sin is huge. There was huge sin going on in the people of Israel who have recently been returned to the nation. What was that sin? Well, notice that it involves both the leaders and the people. Everyone is involved in this. Notice that it involves, quote, not separating themselves from the peoples of the land or the non-Israelites. It also involves, quote, mixing the holy race with the peoples of the land through intermarriage. Now, what does all this mean? Because to our modern ears, this, these kind of things that Ezra is upset with probably sound racist. We see words like holy race. Now, that word race in Hebrew is seed, holy seed. We see phrases like mixing with the peoples of the land or not separating themselves from the peoples of the land. And so it might seem, again, to our eyes uh, through reading it today, that God was forbidding racial integration, that God was promoting racial segregation for racial segregation's sake. It might seem as though God was forbidding interracial marriage for no other reason than that it was uh, just marriage between peoples of different races. And sadly, that is how some in the church over the years have interpreted passages like this. It's interesting that uh, this past Tuesday in our men's study, just in this small group of guys that were talking uh, on this Zoom meeting, we had one uh, guy share that shortly after he became a Christian in the 70s, he was attending a church and uh, sitting there listening to the sermon, and, and the pastor actually preached, it may have been this text or a text like it, in those terms, just flat told the congregation that Christians shouldn't marry others of other races. That, that God forbids that. We can see it in the Word of God. Uh, one brother who was attending the, the study actually shared that he was told that this past week 
a couple of weeks ago that that a, a fellow Christian uh, in, in, a, in another study that he's involved with shared that. Said, well, if you look at Ezra chapter 9, we can see that people of different races shouldn't get married. And see, when the church has interpreted these passages this way, it, it has caused devastating effect in the church and in the nation. Well, we have to understand, brothers and sisters, that that is not what's being taught here. Let me be very clear about this. Because Scripture, if we go back to just the foundation, Scripture teaches clearly two things. Uh, we talked about this in our, uh, in our uh, sermon series that we did in Genesis when we were outside last fall. But Scripture teaches clearly that there is one race, the human race. One race, that there are, Scripture calls it, lots of peoples, tongues, and tribes, and nations. So there's a lot of variety among the world, but every human being is descendant from Adam and Eve, so that every human being is related to one another in exactly the same way, and, and created in exactly the same way in the image of God. And furthermore, the other thing that we know from Scripture is that one day, when the Lord Jesus returns, people of all tribes and tongues and nations who have been united together in Christ will be as one on the earth, united together uh, in perfect glory. What we have to be clear about here is that it says here, and this is what, what really clarifies it for us, that the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, comma, with their abominations. That is the key phrase. See, this separation has nothing to do with racial purity, and it has everything to do with godly purity. It has everything to do with idolatry and the worship of other gods. It has everything to do with the Israelites keeping themselves holy to the Lord and not falling into idolatry. We see this right before God, uh, the Israelites enter the promised land in Deuteronomy. God warns them of this. He says, look, you're going to enter the land, and it's a land, and he lists the same people that are here listed in Ezra 9, the the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. I'm gonna, you're going to run into all of these people. He says this, don't make any covenant with them. Don't intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters to your sons, comma, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. That's the point. And I think there are yeah, one, one of the most devastating examples of this, and in fact, maybe one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible, is 1 Kings 11.4. It says, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And so devastating was this turning away of Solomon's heart that the nation of Israel was split in half. You see, anyone from any other tribe, tongue, nation could become an Israelite. And when 
that person from another tribe or tongue or, or nation turned away from their gods to worship and serve the God of Israel, then that meant that they were open to marry an Israelite. We see Moses married a Cushite woman, Zipporah. Boaz married Ruth, who was a Moabite. And what do we see in that glorious passage? What does Ruth say to Naomi? She specifically says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She turned away from her idolatry to worship the God of Israel. Boaz's mother was Rahab the Canaanite. Rahab was, from what we can tell, was not only we know she was a prostitute, she may very well have been a temple prostitute for a Canaanite god, which shows you how deep her idolatry ran. But she left her false worship of false gods. She turned and became, according to Scripture in Hebrews 11, a great woman of faith in the God of Israel. And who did she marry? She married Salmon, who was one of the leaders of Israel. Interestingly, when you look at uh, the genealogy in the Bible, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. <laughs> Israel's greatest king came from intermarriage with those who had left their idolatry and been united to the God of Israel by faith. And that genealogy, if you read Matthew, led all the way to the Messiah himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't even have to go into other sections of the Bible. We can see this clearly in Ezra itself. In Ezra chapter 6, after the temple had been built in the dedication of the temple, what do we see there in Ezra chapter 6, verses 19 to 21? On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. They're keeping the Passover, this great feast of Israel. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. They slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. And it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. Now you would think that it would end there. You would think that this celebration would be only for the returned exiles of Israel. But then there's this comma, and it says, and also this solemn assembly was also joined in, and the Passover was also taken by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. That means that in our own very own book, the book of Ezra, we see that Non-Israelites who had turned away from their idolatry were there celebrating the Passover. They had essentially become Israelites. And lest we think that this not mixing was, was only for the Old Testament, no, we're, we're told in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? You see, even in the New Testament church, what is God concerned about? God is concerned that Christians not marry unbelievers. God is still concerned about the righteousness of his people not being turned away by being unequally yoked or unequally married to someone who doesn't share the faith 
of the Christian. But we see that this sin, marrying pagans who have not left their idolatry, has really infested and infiltrated the entire nation of Israel. Look at who is doing this. It's not as though these leaders come and say, well, the people are doing this. It's the priests, it's the Levites, it's the officials, it's the chief men, and it's all the people. The Hebrew term there in verse 2, faithlessness, that the officials and the chief men, it's an extremely strong expression, meaning essentially that they have abandoned the faith. They've been so influenced by this idolatrous relationship that they've abandoned the faith. And I think this shows just how bad it is when leadership in the church goes awry, when leaders in the church turn to idolatry. You see that, that this, when leaders fall into sin, you just see this ripple effect. When leaders teach unbiblical doctrine and, and model unbiblical relationships, it, it takes everybody down. And so the whole nation is involved in this. Now, real quick, before we get to Ezra's reaction, one bright spot in this whole thing, if we could see a bright spot, is that what is, all, what is said here is voluntarily given. Notice that, that Ezra does not beat it out of anyone. I mean, things are not good. But on the other hand, one of the things we can take comfort in is that it was apparently the instruction of God's word for four months by Ezra that brought about not only conviction of sin in hearts, but confession of sin from mouths. The Word of God has a way of exposing hidden sin in people's hearts. And then not only exposing the hidden sin, but then convicting them of it. And then ultimately leading them to confessing that sin. We see that all throughout Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Hebrews 4, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God says in Isaiah 55, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. You may recall David. David who had committed heinous sin and admitted in Psalm 32 that he was suppressing the sin, walking around as though he hadn't done anything. And it was really eating away at him inside, but he wasn't letting anyone else know. And, and what led him to publicly confess this sin? It was God's word brought to him by Nathan the prophet. That's what exposed the sin to him. And that's one of the reasons why it is so important for us to be here every Sunday morning. Because when we think about the, the, the word or the phrase church discipline, we usually think of it in terms of its kind of punitive measure. When we think of church discipline, we only think of it in terms of like, you know, someone being excommunicated from the church for unrepentant sin. But we have to understand that that word discipline comes from the same root word that just means disciple. And that means that when you come here on Sunday morning, 
and you hear God's word proclaimed, you are disciplined or discipled in your own heart and mind as a Christian every week. Your sin that you've been harboring or playing with or kind of treating gently is exposed. And the gospel is again presented to you and it stirs things up in your spirit and your soul. Well, how does Ezra react? Notice in verses 3 to 5, Ezra's reaction is really huge. He is devastated. And that's why I say he, he probably had no clue that this was going on. Compare, for example... Ezra's reaction to this news, to his reaction that no Levites had signed up to go to Jerusalem. Remember that from last week. He's headed to Jerusalem. He counts everybody. He realized no Levites have signed up. That was a big problem to Ezra, and he set about solving that issue. But here, he's undone. The news that they're in sin he, he, he rends his clothes, he, he pulls out his hair, he rips out his beard. Why? Why such a dramatic difference? You see, the first one involved a, a personal hardship in his life. It, it was kind of a wrench thrown into his plans, but, but this news is the news that God's holy law has been abandoned. That God's people have fallen into grievous sin and faithlessness to God. And I thought about that this week, Christian. When you think about what upsets you in life, just consider the past week or the past month or the past year. What has really riled you up and gotten you angry? Made you upset? Made you despair? What has done it more? Politics or sin in the church and in your life? What has more upset you over the past month? Bad traffic or sin in your own heart and in the church? What upsets you more when your favorite team loses or sin in your own life and in the life of the church? I know that sounds silly, but think about it. When we read passages like this and we see Ezra's reaction, do we think it a tad melodramatic? Do we think Ezra's blowing things out of proportion a little bit? Christian, if we think that, it is only because we have lessened the holiness of God and lessened the wretchedness of sin. That is the only reason that we do not react the way Ezra reacts to sin. That's not the case with Ezra. These actions show a profound understanding of the holiness of God and of the wretchedness of sin. He rips his clothes, which was symbolic of grief at someone's death. It's as though Ezra sees Israel as having died. And Ezra sits in public like this, appalled, it says, until the time of the evening sacrifice, which was the ninth hour, at which point he cried out to God. Notice Ezra's cry. 
his confession. His confession is total. He doesn't hold anything back. He doesn't try to smooth things over. His confession is specific. It's not vague. He goes into great detail of what exactly they've done. His confession is excuseless. He doesn't offer any excuses for what they've done. And I think this is an excellent model for us in our confession, both when we confess to God and when we confess to one another. I mean, just think about it. Not a show of hands, but how many of you in this room just love How many of you think it's one of your favorite things in the world to confess all of the things that you've done wrong to another person, not smooth anything over, go into great detail, and not make any excuses? I don't think anyone in here enjoys that. Can't tell you how many times I in my life have said, yeah, I did that, but you We love to do that. But you see, when you're talking to God Almighty, who is not tempted and tempts no one and is not the author of sin, we cannot ever say, yeah, I did that, but you did this. This is one of the great prayers of the Bible, Ezra's prayer. It is reminiscent of Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 to 19, which was our confession of sin. Ezra confesses present sin. He confesses that this present sin is is in line with what they have been doing all throughout the ages, that nothing has changed. He confesses God's uncompromising holiness. He confesses Israel's mile-high guilt, and he confesses God's kindness and mercy despite all of the sin. Essentially, Ezra just goes through the history of Israel. He says, God, you you chose us, you had mercy on us, and yet we sinned against you. We did exactly what you told us not to do as soon as we got into the land, and you sent us into slavery. You punished us justly because of what we had done, and yet you had mercy on us. And for this brief period, you have sent us back to the land that we didn't deserve to go to, and what have we done? We've gone right back to what you told us not to do. Lord, what can we do? Our sin is as high as the heavens. Looking at it this way, you can see how foolish and stupid sin is. That when we sin, we are choosing to go against the God who has given us everything we have. And it shows us how guilty we are that when we sin against our creator, there's nothing we can do. Our sin is higher than the heavens. What can we possibly do to remedy it? The Bible says if we try to remedy our own sin, we just dig the hole even deeper. It's striking. Ezra's final words here just really sum up our situation. Behold, we are before you in our guilt for none can stand before you because of this. Perhaps more striking, though, than Ezra's reaction and then Ezra's confession, which are both striking, but perhaps most striking of all 
is how Ezra voluntarily numbers himself among the transgressors. Look at what he says. Look at Ezra's words. He says, my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you. Father, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. We have been in great guilt. We have forsaken your commandments. We are before you in our guilt. I, we, our, again and again and again, Ezra places himself among the people. Brothers and sisters, who was the one innocent man in this whole thing? Who was the one man who had not participated in any of this? It was Ezra. Ezra had nothing to do with this sin. He is completely innocent, and yet he takes the guilt upon himself. Ezra, being completely innocent of sin, could have rightly stood in judgment of the people. Being completely innocent of the sin, he could have rightly pointed to their sin. They have done what is wrong, God. They deserve to be punished, God. And yet instead, this one innocent man takes the sin upon himself, and he gives himself the punishment due to sin. He rends his own clothes rather than the clothes of the sinner's. He pours, pulls out his own hair rather than the hair of the sinners. He rips out his own beard rather than the beard of the sinners. And friends, that is what a merciful priest does. A merciful priest stands in the place of sinners. Hundreds of years before Ezra would do this, Isaiah prophesied about another suffering servant who would also voluntarily be numbered with the transgressors. This one that Isaiah talked about would not turn his cheek away from being slapped. He would not turn his face away as it was being spat upon, as his clothes were torn and as his beard was ripped out of his face. He let it happen. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Brothers and sisters, our sin was higher than the heavens. 
but our gracious and merciful high priest who had done nothing wrong stood in our place. He bore the wrath that was due us. It's so interesting that just as Ezra cried out to God at the time of the evening sacrifice, which was the ninth hour, so too did our high priest. Matthew 27 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he cry out? It's because he who knew no sin was counted among the transgressors. And although he was innocent, he made those who knew all sin that they could be accounted as children of God. 